2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read there uh, in a few moments. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, there are many um, evangelists uh, these days. I'm sure you've met one or two of them. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, those bringing a religious message. I'm talking about those standing in the middle of the shopping centers or those people on the television uh, in ads or on shopping channels or on YouTube or on social media. Buy our face cream, our furniture that's flat packed, our, our car wash, um, our, our coffee, our sports television package, our life insurance, our chocolate, our dentures. There, there's no end to it. We have plenty of evangelists, don't we? And they get emotive, don't they? The really good ones. And, and passionate. And they tell about their own experience and how wonderful it's made their life. Perhaps embellishing a little bit here and there. And the seals start to come in. That's the idea, isn't it? Some old television adverts there, isn't there? I don't know if you remember some of them. We've been looking at the New Testament uh, church since the start of the year. Our Christ and His People series is almost at, at a close now. We've got one more uh, sermon coming. Uh, and it's led us to consider lots of aspects of the local church. Uh, we've seen how it's not a members club uh, where you pay your dues uh, for privileges, but it is a family. The family of God. And we remember our theme verse right at the beginning. It's not like a restaurant where we're served, but, but it's a place where we all serve. And everyone knows where the cutlery drawer is. It's not a place of consumers, because we're, you are yourself a part of it. The, the church is a, is a body, a body that you're yourself part of and have a place to serve in. So we don't get annoyed and head for the supermarket down the road because they've moved uh, the baked beans once again. It has leadership and with gender defined by God, not fluid with the current cultural preferences. It's comprised of people who admit that they're needy and weak and don't have it all together, who, who pray and cry out to God to provide for them, unlike any positivity, self-help, look-within mantra that we might find in, in the bookshelves of our age. It's got a different set of economics to what you might learn in school or business school even, where you give away with the glory of God being the chief concern. The church is in many ways, as I've just explained, the opposite of what we're used to. Isn't that right? It's the opposite of what works in the world in many ways. But is that a surprise when we consider that God's ways are higher than our ways? Is it a surprise when we consider that God often, often works completely in the opposite way that we might expect? In the pages of Scripture, and on the pages of our lives. But today we consider the need to evangelize. But of course we speak about the original. The original and best. Not cornflakes. But the gospel of grace. The need to share our faith in that. that the, to, to teach others the gospel. With the aim to persuade them. And that's an important word. Today in a, in a, world, in a world that prefers the, the appearance of and the here and now, we'll see that the church deals in the eternal and the internal, not the temporary or the superficial, the surface. What is the role of the church in evangelism? How do we do that? What, whose job is that even? You say, that's not mine. That's not mine. I'm just not gifted in that. 
Uh, there are others for that. Uh, evangelist. Doesn't Paul talk about evangelists in Ephesians chapter 4 when he's going through that list of gifts that God has given or named people with gifts? There are maybe others who, who have strong people skills, no lack of confidence in that, talking to people who could, who could sell snow to an Eskimo, as it were, who are maybe saying, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure I do that. Not so much ability, more a willingness issue that, isn't it? Am I supposed to do that? I mean, I mean, that sounds a bit intolerant. I mean, that, that, that's a word people might use where we, where we sense pushback from our culture. People have their own way. Let, let, the, let the Muslims well alone. Let, let the Roman Catholics lead them to God's mercy. Uh, I, I mean, religious tolerance, each to their own. Surely that puts us in our place, does it? Well, let me read you from God's word in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth in chapter 5. Let's read from verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who, might, uh, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm reading at the end of chapter 5. The best recommendations sometimes come from someone who's experienced it for themselves. Let's talk about best recommendations this morning. A painter or, or, or you might say, I, I can recommend to you a really good joiner, or a really good chippy, or a car dealer, or a mobile phone that I've got, or, or a restaurant that I've visited, or a, or a hotel that I've stayed in, or a series on iPlayer that I've watched. Paul is very aware that people are looking on uh, at the people who meet each week on a Sunday in Corinth for church. But those who are watching on are clearly the sort of people who judge by appearances. Now, we understand this all day long. We judge books by their cover, you know, to the extreme in our world. People, of course, I'm talking about on appearance, don't we? 
And some of the people looking on in Corinth are sort of pushing back with a kind of so what glance. Paul speaks about those, verse 12, who boast about outward appearance. People are sort of looking at them from a worldly, physical perspective, summing up people with how they look, who they are, what they do for a living, what they own, whether or not they're important in those sort of terms. And those boasting in Corinth clearly see themselves as sort of better on that league table. And they see nothing special about those Christians, really. I mean, a bit of a ragtag, a bunch of misfits meeting on a Sunday, those Christians. They look at the outward appearance, nothing special. But they don't consider the heart, Paul says. And of course, the reality of the Bible's message is that what's going on in the heart is what really matters. Not the external, but the internal. Man looks on the outward appearance God looks in the heart, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. And some of the people in Corinth are also pushing back by saying, you know, those Christians are, well, they're mad. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, NIV, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. Perhaps Paul's speaking about himself there as being declared to be mad. But either way, there's pushback. But bit strange, those Christians. Crazy what they believe. In fact, mad that they want to convert others instead of leaving people well alone. They're happy enough with what they believe. You'll perhaps recall that Jesus was called mad too in Mark chapter 3. Sin is the real madness, but that's for another day. But you see that what they miss as they look on is the important thing. The inside that, that matters, the reality, what God sees. The position of these Christians that Paul speaks about in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Christ. That is to say that the heart change that these Christians have experienced. Change. That, that, that's to say that they, they were living lives like, like most people. Enjoying good days, complaining about bad days, telling the odd white lie, committing the odd sin, but nobody really got hurt, justifying it by saying, you know what, everyone does that, and, or maybe just blaming somebody else and, and, and getting on with it. They regarded this life as all that mattered. They, looked, they took no thought for death. Perhaps they just saw it as a, as a full stop, and that was it. Paul says, verse 16, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. You see, they regarded people from a, from a this life perspective and they also are regarding Jesus from a, from a this life perspective. Paul, of course, had heard about Jesus before, but he regarded him as just from a this life perspective at that time. Back in the early days, uh, he was just thinking of Jesus as a, as a this life man. and In fact, a, a figure from history. In fact, in their case, recent history, but, 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 a, but a failure of a man even. He was once thought by some to be the Messiah, but clearly there was a false dawn in that, for, for, he, for he died. He wasn't around anymore. And, and any claim he had on the Jewish throne or, 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 or about releasing them from, from Roman occupation, well, that was dead in the water. But something happened one night, didn't it, when Paul's eyes were opened. A new life was breathed into him. He was no longer in Adam. He was no longer in that Russian doll of Adam that I tried to explain it to you in, that, that idea that everyone's uh, inside the, the, the big Russian doll of Adam and you get those smaller dolls the whole way down and every single person that's ever existed in all of the world are all inside Adam, 
in the Russian doll, right throughout history, can you imagine? No, no, now he was in the, in the Russian doll of in Christ. He was in Christ. And by being in Christ, well, the changes on the inside are remarkable. Verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As a result of being in Christ, Paul says that they are a new creation. The creative power of God has been at work on them on the inside. They are a new creation. We're, we're part of the, the new people of God. We're alive now in the spiritual realm. The same spirit that hovered over the face of the deep and created in the beginning is, is, that, is that creative work within us. That's the idea. A new creation. They underestimate what's happened for sure, says Paul as he once did himself, as we all once did, in fact. Yet the truth be told, the old us has died and we are alive now in Christ. We were dead and now we are alive in him. All this comes from God, Paul says. He did it, God. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are mad, we're, we're mad for God's sake. Look what's happened to our life. Verse 15, we no longer live for ourselves. What happens on the inside comes out, doesn't it? Paul says to the Corinthian church at verse 11, they are those who are knowing the fear of the Lord. We are those who know the fear of God, Paul says to them. We know that there's a God in heaven. We know that he made us. We know that we owe him honor and worship. We know that because we've sinned that he is angry and, and we're, we're at, at war with him and, and, he's, and he's rightly angry and, and that a sacrifice is required because, uh, to satisfy his righteous anger against our sin. We know that Jesus has come to provide that ultimate sacrifice. We know that he was no failure, but he came to provide reconciliation between God and people who were at war. To end the war. Verse 21 is very powerful in your Bible. Have a look at it. Don't miss it. For our sake, he, that is God, made him to be, no, to be sin, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because we have been there and are now here, as it were, we have experienced and benefited from the gospel. We are now in Christ. And, and you know what? We, we can tell you about it. We, we've got a recommendation. We can do it. We can share words of testimony. We can tell you our story. What's happened to us. Our recommendation, if you like. And they may think us mad or crazy. Of course, there's difficulty here. There's, there's possible pushback here. I'm sure you've heard it. Sort of. That's good for you, but no good for me, kind of response from somebody. You know, a kind of thing you might say about if a, if a restaurant wasn't your style, it might be their style, but it's not your style, uh, the, the, the food's too spicy or something. The painter might be, might be good, but he's far too slow, or the car dealer might be a bit too pushy, or the hotel might be too dear, or the TV show might be too complicated or too slow or something. And people say that, don't they? That's common for sure. That's lovely for you to be a Christian. It's, it's just great. In fact, it's, it's just great that you like to go to church. That, that's good for you. In fact, I'm pleased for you. Have you ever heard someone say that? Maybe even, 
I'd love to have your faith, but I don't. Something like that. They're essentially saying that it's not universally true. Something that the postmodern worldview rejects. It's called a meta-narrative, if you're interested. A sort of once-for-all truth that everyone has to listen to. That's what postmodernism doesn't like. But it's not just lovely for me. Because if you understand the fear of the Lord, well, you have to understand verse 10, where we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That means that we know we will all stand before him at the last day. That means it's not just necessary for me to to fear God and be wonderful for me. It's actually necessary for you. There's more to it than the here and now. Live life to the full, die if you must. That's kind of like the way people live, isn't it? There's accounting of your sins coming, a day in which you will be held accountable. And of course, all this comes from God. All this is a work of God. You see, if that's true, and it is, then then it's not just that, that, that I'd love to have your faith, and I don't. God gives faith if it all comes from God, you see. He can give it to you. This can happen to you as well. So I recommend you consider these things. But I recommend actually goes much further because there's strong motivation, secondly speaking. It's not just a recommendation, it's a strong motivation because it's not just that I'm in Christ now and I recommend it to you, it's that I really urge you. Why, why tell uh, the gospel to others? Why would you do that? Because they, because they need a good shake, because they, they're rotten sinners? Well, the reason Paul gives, the reason for telling others is very clear for sharing your faith. And it's, and it's love. It's a matter of love. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, says Paul. That's them and him, us. Important word there. He's talking about all of us in the church as he speaks to them. He says, me and you in the church in Corinth. Other translations. The love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ compels us. That's a word with a bit of punch, isn't it? You hear it? Constraints, controls, compels. Love of Christ. Now, now this can mean either, well, is Paul talking about Christ's love for us, or is he talking about our love for Christ? Do you, do you see the difference? Which direction is, he, is, he, is the arrow in? Is it Christ to me, us, or Christ, us to Christ? Which, which direction is it in? In both English and in the original language of the New Testament, this could mean both. But the truth is, it, it does mean both. Because first of all, we get this the right way around, right? Christ's love is poured into our hearts. Love of Christ for us. The love of one who, of course, came from heaven and lived and died for us. Uh, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast and measured, bound us free, ruling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. You know that one? That love. The love of one who laid down his life for his friends. The love of one shown in verse 21, who for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that, That love that's poured into our hearts. That's at work on us on the inside. That's changed us. 
That's important, the change. Well, with that love, then we can love others. That's, that's, that's right. So we can love Christ and we can love others. Back, the arrows going back and out. With that understanding of the gospel, because we love Christ and he's loved us first and we love him and we want to do what he tells us, then we, we can love others, even though our love is feeble and weak in comparison to his but because of Christ's love for us, because he saved us, uh, we are his new people. Because he, he's died for us, all of us, and that's what Paul means by died for all at the start of verse 15. It doesn't mean that, that he died for all as in absolutely everybody in the world ever. For those people have not all died to sin, as in the clause at the end of verse 14, if you follow me. Because those are the same people that Paul's speaking about. And no... He dies for those who believe. That's those who've died, as in who've died to sin at the end of verse 14. And that's who he's talking about at the start of verse 15. Now, some people fall out over this. I've never found it a terribly relevant position to hold. For, of course, those who reject him, the Savior, Jesus, his sacrifice is of no use to them anyway. So the fact that he dies for them is of no real benefit. That's my understanding of this, and that's what I would explain to you in this. But anyway, let's move on. We have freely received his love and his death for us. And because of this love, well, we can love others. And amongst other new things, Paul says that we look at unbelievers in an entirely different way. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul's saying that you kind of get a new pair of spectacles, glasses, whenever you become a Christian. Do you notice that? The way you regard or look at people is different. Looking at them just as, a, as the superficial appearance, this life is all that matters. Well, that, that's, that's not you anymore. Jairus' um, grandmother used to say that a certain famous ex-terrorist come politician who shall remain unnamed still has a soul to be saved. That's what she used to say. And she was absolutely right. Because she wasn't regarding him according to the flesh or what was expected of her in her particular Northern Ireland background. No, no, she was looking at him from the eternal, external, not external, but internal situation, which, which she should. If you're at a big event, I don't know, a football match or a concert or something, or you're in an airport and there's teeming you know, thousands of people walking past every hour and you've got nothing to do, as a believer and a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to see two different sorts of people. Or certainly realize that that is what there is in front of you. The sheep and the goats. The saved and the lost. Those in Adam and those in Christ. They look different at you, Paul says to the Corinthians. But now in Christ you see them very differently. We've got different spectacles on. We have very different, a very different worldview, you could say. We see two types of people. And one type are lost. I wonder what controls you. What interpretation of the world inspires you to, to act? What compels you as you live your life? What, what, what are you working off? Being successful, being liked, 
keeping a low profile, providing or taking care of your family, nothing wrong with that, getting to retirement, nothing wrong with that, getting to the next holiday, getting to the next promotion, nothing wrong with that. But what controls you really? What's at the heart of it? Those things are possible in, in, a, in an absolutely normal situation, but what controls you is the question. What's at the heart of it? What's driving you on? Is it the love of Christ? Don't be like meatloaf who sings that he'll do anything for love, but he won't do that. I don't do witnessing. I don't do sharing my faith. Paul clearly shows concern about the seriousness of the plight of these people, doesn't he? And that's the concern that he expects them to share in the church. With the, prospect, with the prospect of eternity under the judgment of God, they are concerned, Paul says. Not for themselves. For the, for the love of Christ covers us. Uh, for his goodness uh, it covers us. We, we've had our sins paid for. But for them... For them. And so motivated by love and concern and an understanding of the truth, we seek to persuade people, Paul writes. We implore people, Paul writes. You see that in verse 11? We persuade others. Verse 20. We implore you. Not with sleight of hand or smooth charm that could convince someone to do anything that they later get buyer's regret for. No, we don't manipulate people. We don't give them the good parts of the message and fail to mention the, the difficult parts of being a Christian. That is worldly wisdom. Can I, can, I, can I sell you a timeshare in southern Spain that happens to be in the middle of nowhere by talking about everything apart from location? Can I, can I get you to change electricity supplier in the middle of the shopping center without mentioning that the price is about to rise 10 times next month? I'm not going to tell you about it. Can I, can I give you a free one-month trial of Sky Glass without telling you that you can't get out of it and it'll be auto-renewed next year whether you like it or not? Sleight of hand. That's worldly wisdom. But the gospel is just a quick transaction, a quick prayer on the street corner or raising your hand in a meeting, that it's going to feel good, that, that it's a free ticket to heaven, that it doesn't come at a cost, that it comes with, with assurance that you'll never be lost. Now, you will go to heaven. Salvation is free. But being a disciple, that's a costly business. And if God does save you, it is work, so you won't be lost. Absolutely not. But they need to understand the size of what's taking place here. This is from in Adam to in Christ. You die and are born again. The old you has gone. The new has come. The old you has died. The new has been reborn. This is God at work. The creator of everyone and everything is at work in salvation. How could that be a small thing? It can't be. It can't be. This is massive. This is transformation. This is powerful with a capital P. But we are to persuade. That word in verse 11 carries in the original the sense that it may or may not be successful. That's okay. That's in God's hands. May or may not be successful. Some people will hate it. Some people will hunger for more. That's the options. <laughs> really, when it boils down to it, they might say, oh, no, thank you very much. But some, you know, there's a bigger response going on than that usually. 
I think always actually. To hate it or to hunger for more. We are to try hard to not give up at the first hurdle. The way you would if the hotel you're staying in is on fire and people are asleep in their rooms. Would you like to waken up, please? There's a fire. No. Please waken up now. There's a fire. Do you hear the difference? They may not feel the heat yet, but you do. Verse 20, to implore. This is not a matter of life and death. This is much more important. Finally, this morning, I want to teach you about your high vocation from God's word as an ambassador for Christ. In verse 20, Paul tells the church in Corinth that they are ambassadors. To be an ambassador, I don't think any of you have ever been an ambassador. Maybe you have, but it's a very important role. That's why they've got their own queue at the airport for passport control. It's called diplomats, so you can just sneak on through, no problem. No e-gate problems this weekend for them. Not a bit. But not just any ambassadors. They are ambassadors for Christ Paul says. They're Christ's ambassadors. They are ambassadors of the king of all things. The high king. Representatives of him that brings a message to someplace else. That's what that word is. An ambassador. You're an ambassador on a peace mission. A mission that says peace is available. Warring parties can be reconciled. God's grace is on offer. God is working in this and through and through. Is he working in you? That's the question. And the words you're given to use are there. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. It's God at work, but be reconciled. You strive for that. You seek that. Seek that with all your heart and you'll find it. Strive to enter through the narrow door is the way the Bible teaches it. The one that leads to life. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We read that there in verse 19. Verse Verse 18. But what is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, it's after the that is of verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is the message of reconciliation. You see that? How do you be reconciled is to be in Christ. For that is how God was reconciling the world to himself. And who does God give the ministry of reconciliation to? Verse 18 again. All this is from God who through Christ reconciles us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Who, who does God entrust it to? Verse 19 at the end. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Twice, just in case we're in any doubt. Who is the us? Well, Paul's talking to the church, isn't he, in Corinth? But it's also us in the church here in Dundonald, by implication, isn't it? This is our ministry. This is our life's work now. Who does God make his appeal through? Paul says he makes his appeal through the people of the church in Corinth. And by implication, through us too. That means we can't subcontract this one out. Your local church is the engine room of evangelism. You say we've got events for that. And well, we might do. 
Good Friday events, especially focused for unbelievers, come along to Hope Explored, which we often run in the autumn or something like that. But isn't it true, isn't it true that if we, we, we shared the gospel with those unbelievers that we all know, that the multiplication impact would be great, wouldn't it? You would spread the net really far, wouldn't you? If you shared it with two people and there was 80 people in the room, that's 160, and you get the idea. If you didn't need to bring them to hear someone, that reduces their options. Because they might be sick on the day, they might pull out on you. Why not just tell them? <laughs> you see? You see the advantage of that? If they don't have to come along to an event and you just tell them, and that, that, that's really helpful. All the people that you that aren't Christians that you come in contact with every week, think about them. In fact, you wouldn't hope to get them all into this building. You wouldn't have a chance. There's no chance. It'd be impossible to fit them all in. Impossible. We need to help each other in this. We need to encourage each other in this. We need to talk about it. To, have, you, have you had any positive response this week to, to, to sharing about Jesus? Have you, have you, have you anyone that, you, that you're praying for that, that I could be praying for? Uh, have you any pushback that I can help you with from my own experience? You see, the way I, the way I look at this, the, the older people have the wisdom and the experience, but those are the people with much fewer unbelieving friends and contacts. Isn't that right? The people with all the unbelieving friends and contacts are the younger ones. They're more at the cool face, for sure. They are connected with far more unbelievers. So we've got to sort of support each other in this. You know, you, the older help the younger, and the younger help the older. You, you get the idea. Do you know the very best thing that could happen to us here in this church? Do you know the very, very best thing that could happen? It would be that someone would get converted. You say yes. But the very best thing that could happen to Dundonald Baptist Church is that someone would come to faith, not as a result of what I say from this pulpit, but as a result of what God does through what you say. That's the best thing that could happen. On a walk, over a coffee, in the work staff room. Because that would fire us up that God is at work in the way he says he's at work in one of his ambassadors. Isn't that right? That would empower every single one of us. That's the very best thing that could happen. That, that we would become a maternity hospital for, for new birth in the way, the very best way that could happen to us. A new believer. God can use programs and courses and events. And, and we, we, we do use these things as evangelism tools, but they're not the primary way that we should do evangelism. God did not send an event. He sent his son. And, and don't be surprised if a relationship with his son comes as a result of a relationship with someone who knows his son. Someone like you. Most people come to faith these days because a Christian friend or family member that they knew shared the gospel with them. Most people come to faith because someone was intentional about the gospel on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Yes, there's the odd person who is is totally un uninhibited about sharing their faith. But ask someone more normal what hinders them in speaking about Jesus, and they'll tell you the same thing. Fear. Fear of looking stupid. Fear of being called crazy or weird. Fear of rejection. 
some of us have never struck up a conversation with anyone like this. But we've got the wrong fear. We're to fear the Lord. We're to honor him, aren't we? We've got a high calling as, a, as ambassadors. We're, we simply aren't doing our work otherwise. Our life's work, the work that God does making his appeal through us, our love for Christ is not leading us to serve as we're meant to. Our love is somewhere else. Our vision is stuck in this life or something like that. It's, it's outward and temporary and superficial when it should be inward and eternal and paramount. But lest we despair, let's help each other. Let's pray for one another. Let's equip one another. Let's share stories with one another that has happened to us. Notice how Paul not so much writes to them as a sort of outside person looking on in this chapter, but rather counts himself as one of them in this passage. He doesn't say you, he says us. Did you notice? He says we. He says us. He says I'm one of you too, right through this passage. Let's help each other. What's the reason why you work where you work? You say, I, I saw it in an advert when I went for an interview and they gave me the job. Or a recruitment firm sent me another CV request and I you know, replied and got this you know, op opportunity. And, or I transferred from another department and in my work and this is promotion and that's, work, that's why I work there. Or What's the reason you live on your street? You say, we, we spotted it on, on Property Pal and we went to the estate agents and, and they told us that there was this one, but there was actually a better one coming up and so we, we went for it and, and they gave us the first refusal. Or we really liked the layout of the rooms and you know, it just was just the right house for us. You say, a friend of ours told us that it was available for rent and we, we went to the landlord and he, he was happy with us. Do you know the real reason you live in your street? Do you know the real reason why you work where you work? The real reason why you have that circle of friends that you have as a circle of friends? Well, it's because the sovereign Lord of heaven put you there. Because you're an ambassador for the street. You're an ambassador in the office or the ward or the shop floor. You're an ambassador for your family. And the sovereign Lord of heaven put you there. And he's put you there not to just be a sort of good influence or a decent citizen, or, but as a herald of the only message that really matters. The reality of the heart. The eternity that's coming. A herald of the only message that really matters. A share of, look what happened to me. A recommendation. But more of a sense of, you need this too. An urgency. An imploring. A persuasion. A sense of God appealing through you to them, which is what Paul says. Evangelism. Nothing easy about it. No experts. Two options. Hate it. Want to hear more. Hunger. 
but this is what you're doing on planet Earth. And this is your life's work. Let's pray together, shall we? In the words of uh, John Wesley, O high and holy one that inhabits eternity, you are to be feared and loved by all your servants. All your works praise you, O God, and we especially give thanks unto you for your marvelous love in Christ Jesus, by whom you have reconciled the world to yourself. You have given us exceeding great and precious promises. You have sealed them with his blood. You have confirmed them by his resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given us so many happy opportunities of knowing the truth as it is in Jesus, even the mystery which was hid from ages and generations, but is now revealed to them that believe. Father, give us help and not despair. Give us desire and enthusiasm and excitement for sharing the only message that really matters. And we pray it will be able to help each other in this difficult task that is your work that you do through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing filled with.